The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. On the filibuster, lifetimes of tenure on the Supreme Court, uh, and the Electoral College, the United States is, is virtually alone among established democracies. One, because it's it's harder to, to reform the Constitution than it is in other democracies. Among democracies, the United States has easily the most difficult to reform. But also because over the last half century or so, we have sort of developed a, a political culture in this country of institutional stasis. We're still struggling to figure out exactly why. But whereas in most of U.S. history, there have been efforts, there's been a constant public discussion and movements to make our political system more democratic. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 21st, 2023. Democratic backsliding, a term that American political scientists usually use to describe the process by which other countries transition to autocracy, has come home. Freedom House's Global Freedom Index, which attempts to track the health of democracies around the world, recently demoted the United States from a score of 90 in 2015 to 83 in 2021, lower than every established democracy in Western Europe. How did American democracy fall so far behind? And more importantly, what can we do about it? I spoke with Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Zablat, authors of the new book, Tyranny of the Minority, Why American Democracy Reached the Breaking Point, to answer these questions about our ailing democracy. We discussed the diagnoses and prescriptions of this breaking point, the most damaging counter-majoritarian features of the U.S. Constitution, and why constitutional and electoral reform is so damn difficult in the U.S., but not impossible. We also got into how the Republican Party went off the rails. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 21st, The Tyranny of the Minority, with Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Zablat. Stephen, Dan, you... You open your latest book on two scenes, one on January 5th and one on January 6th, uh, the first being in Georgia, which I thought was a great idea, and not just because uh, it's my home state. But I want to ask you why you started on those two scenes, why you opened the book there, and, and what it illustrates about the main thrust of the argument you're making. And Dan, I'll start with you. Yeah, so you know, people do, of course, remember January 6th, and correctly so. But sometimes people forget that the day before January 6, 2021, on January 5th, 2021, was a historic day where you had African-American and Jewish-American elected to the Senate. And, you know, this was a kind of remarkable moment of promise in a certain way of what a multiracial democracy could look like. So it's something that civil rights advocates had been working for for generations. And so there's, I think there's sort of two points in juxtaposing January 5th and January 6th. Uh, the first is that they uh, demonstrate really that there's two strands in American political life. Uh, there's a there's a kind of impulse towards more democracy, towards greater equality, greater inclusion, and that's a long-standing strand in American political life. And at the same time, there's also a long-standing strand of reaction and authoritarian reaction, the kind of scene that we saw on January 6th. So these are not neither are foreign to America. Both are part of what America is, and America contains contradictions and. In some ways, the two are actually very related. And so that's sort of a second point to make is that, you know, not li- it's not as if the events on January 6th literally were a reaction to January 5th, but they were a reaction, and we, we try to make the case, to an effort to make a more inclusive democracy in the United States. And that that every every effort throughout our own history, and we provide an account also of the Jim Crow era as well, where we see this as well, where 
there is an effort at greater inclusion of greater political equality for all Americans. Tend, this, these kinds of movements tend to be disruptive of existing hierarchies. And what one sees on January 6th is a reaction, an authoritarian reaction to that. And so this is also an important theme in American political life. And we have to figure out how to cope with these two strands in order to move forward. And I, I think you rightly characterize January 6th in the book as a culmination rather than an aberration or, or a break from a trend. So I want to take perhaps the book's subtitle first, the full title being, of course, Tyranny of the Minority, Why American Democracy Reached the Breaking Point. So first, Steve, I wonder if you could sort of diagnose uh, you know, what breaking point we're at. Uh, how do we know um, U.S. democracy is at a breaking point? And then a bit about how we got here. Sure, that's a uh, that's half our book. And there are many ways to diagnose uh, a breaking point. We we very deliberately did not characterize U.S. democracy as dying. We don't think it died. We think it's extraordinarily important that many of our core guardrails held that Donald Trump was defeated and ultimately removed from power in 2020. So the United States remains a democracy, but there are a bunch of indicators that point to the the fact that our democracy has at the very least been destabilized, if not has uh, experienced at least a, a modest amount of backsliding. Fundamentally, when one out of two major political parties is no longer fully committed to democratic rules of the game, a democracy is placed in peril. Uh, you cannot have a democracy where, where one of two major parties is not committed to to democracy. What do I mean by that? That's a, that's a big, that's a big charge. We argue in the book that there are three basic benchmarks for determining whether a, a political party is what we call loyal to democracy or committed to democracy. One is that parties are committed to democracy must accept the results of elections, win or lose. That's pretty basic. Another quite basic one is that political parties that are committed to democracy must always and unambiguously renounce political violence. Uh, and the third, a little bit more complex, is that political parties or political leaders who are committed to democracy must very publicly and thoroughly break ties with anti-democratic extremist forces, particularly those on their own political flank. And, you know, in the aftermath of the 2020 election, one could argue that a good chunk of the Republican Party failed on all three of those benchmarks. Certainly, uh, Donald Trump refused to to accept defeat, tried to overturn an election. That's a that's a pretty that's a pretty telltale sign of backsliding. Secondly, the president of the United States uh, arguably encouraged, condoned political violence. And third, and may, maybe most importantly, in the long run the bulk of the party leadership didn't break with Trump. Uh, some party leaders actively supported Trump. More of them just sort of remained silent or condoned. I'm talking about his behavior from between the election and January 6th. Major party leaders either remained silent or condoned, justified, uh, and ultimately in the vote in the Senate, not to convict him, protected. Donald Trump. And so we have a political party very, very clearly starting in 2021 that is willing to maintain as its leader somebody who tried to overturn an election. Uh, and again, any time a political party that's big enough to win elections is not committed to democracy, democracy is under threat. One of the biggest questions I had reading the book that I actually had planned to ask later, but I think it's naturally coming up now with uh, the emphasis on the Republican Party. And you do, you do speak quite a bit about the Republican Party in the book. In fact, there's a, an entire chapter dedicated to it. My question is, you know, there's, there's sort of two strands among many in the book, one being um, the problems with the U.S. Constitution, which once uh, was sort of an, a democratic innovator but has lagged behind, uh, and the other being all of these um, anti-democratic impulses that you mentioned in the Republican Party. I'm curious, you know, what you see as perhaps a bigger problem? Uh, is it just that there are all of these loopholes and ambiguities and counter-majoritarian features of the U.S. competition that a Republican Party who's facing down, you know, a shrinking, you know, shrinking support that, you know, they would be silly not to exploit those <laughs> loopholes in a way, in a sort of realpolitik kind of way. 
So I'm curious where you place the emphasis in terms of diagnosing the problem and then also in terms of you know fixing it and, and making the, the country more democratic again. And I'll, I'll leave that uh, back to you, Steve. I think you, you put your finger on the, the, the problem quite well. There are, there are two major parts to this problem. And I think take one away and democracy, we'd have some problems, but but the, the situation wouldn't be as acute. But we have two things happening simultaneously, which produce kind of a, uh, a, a very dangerous cocktail. One is what we we're just talking about, which is the radicalization of the Republican Party and, and the, the dominant party, the MAGA factions, abandonment of, of democratic rules of the game. And the second, which we deal with in the second half of the book, is a constitution that protects, enables, and empowers an authoritarian minority party. And I think the two are, are intimately connected, unfortunately. One reinforces the other. So the, the problem with the Constitution, we can, we can come back to this. The Constitution is a, is a brilliant document. It's been extraordinarily successful. It's the oldest continuous Constitution in the world. But it's been a Constitution that, compared to others in the world, has been slow to change. We were we had a very progressive, very democratic constitution for its time when it was when it was uh, designed in the in the 18th century. There have been throughout U.S. history uh, serious, sustained, and successful efforts to make the constitution and make our political system more democratic. Uh, we saw it with suffrage expansion. We saw it with Reconstruction. We saw it with the uh, uh, election of senators and various other reforms. But by and large, and especially in the last half century, the U.S. has been slow to, to democratize its constitution compared to other democracies in the world. We have a set of counter-majoritarian institutions that were completely mainstream uh, when they were initially designed. In fact, in some cases, they were, they were innovative and new, but that have been dismantled or weakened in other democracies in the world. Here I refer, of course, to the Electoral College. I refer to uh, a, a highly disproportionate Senate where uh, each state, no matter what the population, gets equal representation. I refer to the Senate filibuster, which obviously is not a constitutional, is not a part of the Constitution, but has been part of our politics for a couple of centuries and been intensely part of our politics for the last 40 years. And, and the Supreme Court, a Supreme Court that uh, whose justices have truly lifetime Tenure security. They, there, there are no uh, no retirement age and no term limits. And those institutions, uh, in addition to other things like gerrymandering, allow partisan minorities to systematically thwart initiatives by partisan majorities, and sometimes allow partisan minorities to govern over majorities. And that's problematic, I think, in and of itself. But it's especially problematic when that partisan minority happens to be extremist and authoritarian. Just to just to push this one one step further, one of the arguments that we make in the book is that because our counter-majoritarian institutions allow the Republican Party to win and exercise a lot of political power without winning national majorities. Um, they can win the presidency without winning the popular vote. They can and have controlled the Senate without winning a popular vote in the Senate uh, and through the presidency in the Senate uh, have a, a dominant position in the Supreme Court. Uh, because they can they can win and exercise power without winning national majorities, they have a weaker incentive to try and and broaden their base. So it's it's a it's a it's a very radicalized party right now. It's a it's a Trumpist party. That is playing to its base, but is not winning national popular majorities. Normally in a democracy, uh, if you think back to the Democratic Party when it lost three consecutive presidential elections in the 1980s or the Labor Party in, in Britain when it lost a string of elections in the 70s and 80s, parties that lose normally have a strong incentive to adapt. And adapt means probably change their leadership, rethink their platform and find ways of building a new majority. That's what parties are supposed to do in democracy, and that's, that, that is critical to the health of a democracy. And we argue that because of the incentives created by our counter-majoritarian institutions, the Republicans don't have the same need 
to, to rebuild a popular majority. If the Republicans had to win more than 50% of the national vote, had to win national popular majorities in order to exercise any power, they would pay a much, much stiffer price for continuing to back Trump and to continue and continuing to back some of the radical ideas that continued to, to percolate throughout the party. They would be compelled in order to survive politically. They would be compelled to broaden their base. And that would be healthy for democracy. Daniel and I, neither of us are registered Republicans, but for us, success, a, a, a reconsolidation of American democracy will occur when the Republican Party can win majorities, can go back to winning the sort of majorities that it won in the 1980s. Daniel, feel free to you know take up anything that Steve just said. And then I also want to um, address something that the two of you spoke with Yasha Monk about, which was a bit of pushback you received from him about the diversification uh, and the widening demographics of the Republican Party. So I think there are some there's some data that indicates there are some polls that indicate that the Republican Party is doing what you uh, suggest. They are broadening their base. They're reaching out to voters of color, younger voters. What's your what's your pushback against that? Yeah. So so really two points, I would say one. I mean, in our book, we really one of the things is we try to provide an explanation for why the Republican Party ended up where it is. Uh, you know, the, the subtitle of our book, Why American Democracy Reached the Breaking Point. And over the course, you know, from from the you know the, the realignment, of, beginning of the realignment of, of parties in the 1960s up through the through the 1990s, into through especially through the Obama era, the Republican Party became. I mean, there's really little dispute of this. Became remained an overwhelmingly white party as American society uh, transformed. It became more diverse. And so this this is undeniable that this is what happened. And I think what we argue is that this is part of what has push the radicalization of the Republican Party that, you know, so the institutional factors that Steve just described are really important. Uh, but another key part of the story is that the Republican Party increasingly became a party where that was having difficulty winning national majorities. I mean, this is, you know, a key fact that we have to remember is that the Republican Party has only won the popular vote for the presidency one time since 1988. I mean, I used to tell this to my students, you know, t- five years ago, and, you know, and that this remains the case, right? You know, and so, for people who are born in you know 1990s or in the two, even in the 2000s now, these are my students. You know, this is kind of a shocking thing because the Republicans still are able to win power, but they they haven't been able to win popular majorities. And given this difficulty of winning popular majorities, the, I think this partly is explains the push towards radicalization. Now, in terms of what's happened over the last you know two years, three years. You know, there is some evidence that there are at, at the margins uh, African Americans defecting from the Democratic Party. I mean, these are we're talking, you know, a few percentage points here and there. Um, there's also uh, indications that in certain, especially in certain places in Florida and so- South Texas, there are Hispanics who are increasingly supporting the Republican Party, still majority support the Democratic Party. So this image of a kind of a highly diverse Democratic Party and a highly homogeneous white party, you know, this this may be decaying at the edges, but, you know, I think it's important to not overstate the, the development. I mean, I think people see this kind of movement and sort of infer that this is the future. I mean, to be clear, we, you know, in some level, that would be a great development for American democracy. If we, you know, having racial polarization between the parties is not is not healthy for democracy. Um, but if the party were really able to genuinely reach out to these majorities that people like to point to, they would have won the, the popular vote and the electoral college vote in in uh, 2020. I mean, this didn't happen. You know, the reason the Republicans felt they needed to assault, I mean, or the reason that people needed felt they needed to assault the, the Congress on January 6th, or the reason that Trump had to deny the results of the elections, because he wasn't able to reach out to majorities. So in other words, the strategy isn't working. So you know, at the end of the day, of course, diversification would be a good uh, thing, but it obviously hasn't proceeded far enough. And, and our key point then is that you know, we need to jumpstart this. And I think that our institutions are actually hindering the Republican Party's incentives to do to reach out to those majorities. I mean, so, you know, there may be, you know, candidates that look more diverse, you know, again, at the margins, but this is certainly not sufficient to generate, to turn the Republican Party at the current moment into a majority party. I mean, this hasn't happened. And I don't really see this happening unless some major changes take place. 
Right. So the Republican Party has not yet put together this rainbow coalition that, that some are suggesting. Your book is filled with some wonderful comparative case studies, historical anecdotes, and I want to bring those into the conversation. Um, so Steve, turning back to some of these counter-majoritarian features you mentioned of the U.S. Constitution and, and also you know not in the Constitution, including the filibuster, I want to bring in some other countries' experiences, some other democracies' experiences, um, including Norway and others. Um, I think these historical case studies offer uh, a nice sort of counterfactual. The, the message being, you know, it, American democracy didn't didn't have to get this bad <laughs> in a way. So I'm curious, out of those features you mentioned, which one are uniquely American at this point? And where have other democracies overcome those original, um, you know, counter-majoritarian features? Sure, that's a great question. I mean, if you go back to the 19th century, particularly the first half of the 19th century, again, the U.S. was comparatively very democratic. The 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 counter-majoritarian or just outright authoritarian institutions that existed in Europe, including monarchies and completely unelected upper chambers or senates, made the U.S. comparatively quite democratic. Uh, what we are, what we show in the book is that the vast majority of other established democracies over time gradually either completely dismantled these institutions. So, um, things like filibusters that existed or the, 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 the right or the ability of small parliamentary minorities to permanently end debate or permanently block legislation. That was stripped away in most other democracies in the early 20th century. Many democracies either eliminated their upper chamber or dramatically weakened their upper chamber, as the British did with the House of Lords, or democratized their upper chamber. Germany, when after World War II, created a Senate in which more populous states had greater representation than less populous states. Particularly after World War II, other democracies pretty dramatically reformed their judiciaries. And one thing that all of them, established was either term limits or a retirement age in the Supreme Court or the Constitutional Court. So many, many, many other democracies adopted U.S.-style judicial review. That, that's something that was kind of born in the United States and diffused elsewhere. But when democracies in Europe gave their courts this power to strike down legislation, which is a very, it's a, it's a lot of authority and it's a potentially a very undemocratic thing, uh, potentially. They at the same time curbed the at least the the the, the sort of counter majoritarian nature of their judiciaries by establishing term limits in most cases, in some cases retirement ages, so that justices who are appointed by governments representing majorities in one generation don't stick around for forty years and become potentially so divorced from 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 popular majorities. So lifetime tenure on the Supreme Court is something that's uniquely American among established democracies today, the Electoral College, which was uh, copied by most Latin American states in the 19th century when they became independent, existed in much of Latin America in some form or another into the 20th century, has now been eliminated in every presidential democracy in the world, leaving the United States as the only presidential democracy with a uh, with an Electoral College. And, and, and really the only established democracy, although the Koreans are, are playing with one now, uh, that regularly uses a supermajority rule for regular legislation in 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 the legislature, a, a, a filibuster-like element. So on on all of, not not on the uh, disproportionate Senate, but on the filibuster, lifetimes of tenure on the Supreme Court, uh, and the Electoral College, the United States is is virtually alone among established democracies. One because it's it's harder to to reform the Constitution than it is in other democracies among. Democracies, the United States has easily the most difficult to reform, but also because over the last half century or so, we have sort of developed a, a political culture in this country of institutional stasis. We're still struggling to figure out exactly why this has occurred over the, roughly the last century. But whereas in most of U.S. history, there have been efforts, there's been a constant public discussion and movements to make our political system more democratic, going back, beginning with the Bill of Rights, through Reconstruction, through the Progressive Era, the expansion of suffrage, civil rights uh, revolution wasn't about constitutional reform, but rather actually implementing the Constitution. But it's only in the last 50 years that we've kind of dropped that 
discussion entirely. There was, as you know, a serious effort and a serious discussion about uh, abolishing the Electoral College in 1969, 1970, and now it seems something like from another world. So um, the United States is much, much more reluctant and has a much harder time amending its constitution than Norway and other established democracies. And I think we're beginning to, to pay a steep price for that. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, I think the Electoral College episode was especially instructive. It was this sort of perfect storm of all of these uh, obstacles in terms of, you know, passing an actual amendment. Uh, There was the threat of the filibuster. There was, um, you know, more rural southern states forming an alliance against it because they felt like it was a threat. So, you know, before we get into some of the reforms that that you suggest toward the end of the book, I want to dwell on this challenge of constitutional amendment or or change. You know, if if the United States has had such inertia uh, in terms of democratic reform since its founding, you know, what what makes you think that we can overcome that, or or how can we overcome that, uh, either in terms of constitutional amendment or or other types of of reform? And Dana, I'll go to you for this very easy question. Yeah, no, it's it's a challenge. Um, it's true we've only amended our constitution 27 times. You know, Norway's amended its constitution hundreds of times, many other countries as well. And just mechanically, it's more difficult than the United States. And that's always been the case. You know, the, there's two pathways to constitutional amendment. One that we are more interested in, which is I mean, not calling a constitutional convention, which is allowed for under the, in the constitution, but we don't think that's the way to go. The, the, the way that our amendments have, have typically passed is through this procedure where the House and the Senate both have to approve this by two thirds, has to be approved by three quarters of the states. And so this is a very hard, this high hurdle. And, you know, scholars who study the difficulty of amending constitutions around the world have really made this clear that the U.S. is at the far end of, among the most difficult to change. Other, you know, most countries do have kind of a little bit more complicated barriers. It's not just simple majority. You have to have two-thirds vote, or in some Scandinavian countries, you have to kind of pass the same bill in two subsequent legislative periods to kind of make you know to make it a little more difficult. And I think that's that's actually the right thing to do is to make it difficult. But certainly, this kind of this particularly difficult path for the U.S. makes it more difficult. But that said, that doesn't make it impossible. I mean, our own history does show that there are periods where uh, reforms tend to cluster together, and there's some clue in that about kind of pathways forward. So. We think not only after the U.S. Civil War, which is a unique period where we had, the, you know, the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendments pass one right after the other. Uh, we also, you know, can look to the early twentieth century, where women were given the right to vote. We elect senators rather than appointing them. These major constitutional reforms came about through this amendment process, and so this, this, these things did pass. Now, something that makes our current period more difficult certainly is high levels of polarization, because by definition, you need to have if you're going to in a kind of normal uh, Congress where you're going to have, you know, roughly 50-50 balance or something close to that, you're going to need to get bipartisan support. And so in an era today where there's extreme polarization, it may seem more difficult. But I think one of the other points that I would make is that, you know, it's really key to think that politicians can change what their kind of incentives are. I mean, that politicians, if they think it's in their interest to vote in new ways they will. And so what changes how politicians think about them? I mean, this is, you know, before women had the right to vote, this was something that was regarded as unthinkable. When when the direct election of senators was passed, this is something that sitting U.S. senators who had been appointed 
had to vote for. So how do polit- when, under what conditions do politicians change their calculations? And we think that one of the things that the re- historical record shows is that when there's broad social pressure, increased social consensus, that these kinds of reforms are necessary, then political leaders will change the way that their directions. So that's why we think really what's necessary is a major movement of constitutional reform. Uh, and any of these, along any of these kind of proposals that we have. And so, you know, if citizens demand it and citizens think that it's necessary and essential to preserve and protect our democracy, then gradually the kind of terms of debate will change. And so it's a, it's a long, it can often be a generational struggle, but eventually things that theme, seem unthinkable can uh, come to be regarded as thinkable and, and necessary. Uh, and, and one thing I would just say, you know, we, we quote in the book, the eminent German liberal, post-war German liberal, Rolf Dahrendorf, who was asked, how did, how after World War II did uh, all of these international institutions like the UN and the IMF and so on get constructed? And what he said was something very revealing, and, and, and which was that, you know, these, these didn't just come about after the war that we thought of these things. All of these ideas were thought through during the war. We had discussions about these institutions and the thing is, when the moment comes, you have to be prepared with the ideas. And so we have to prepare the terrain. And so people need to begin to discuss these things so that the moment comes where these kinds of reforms are possible. We have to help create those moments. Then the ideas are out there. And if we wait until that moment, well, you know, we just won't be prepared. So these are all critical. One final point I would make is that you know we are interested in democratic reforms, on effective democratic reforms. And so in the last chapter of our book, we have these 15 proposals, and not all reforms uh, need to be constitutional. I mean, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act of the 1960s are major institutional reforms that don't require constitutional amendment. And, you know, we can go through the list that we have, but there are a lot of things that one can do to make our system more democratic that are major institutional reforms that don't require the kind of onerous process of a constitutional amendment. And these are things that we think need to be embraced as well. Yeah. And before we run through some of those reforms, because I do want to make sure we touch on them, and especially I'm curious your assessment of some of their feasibility or, or if some of them are you know, longer term, maybe pie in the sky, maybe not. And of course, you, you do favor uh, these reforms. It's what you're after. Um, and I think rightfully so. They're more long term and, and would make uh, the democracy more resilient. But uh, in, in the lead up to that discussion, you talk about a few shorter term strategies, um, which I thought were, were pretty interesting because it sort of gave name, I think, to something we saw in the 2020 election, these strategies of containment, what you characterize as militant or defensive democracy, and then, of course, electoral competition. Um, so, Steve, I was wondering if you could just run us through uh, some of those shorter term strategies that kind of fall short of reform, but still accomplish the goal, again, at least of the short term of pushing back against authoritarian or, or you know, uh, anti-democratic elements? Sure. The first that you mentioned is containment. And this draws heavily from the work of the great political scientist, Juan Linz, who was uh, one of the world's greatest experts of undemocratic breakdown in the, in, in the late 20th century. Uh, and he had studied breakdowns in uh, both in Europe and Latin America. And he argued in a very compelling way that when a threat to democracy emerges in the form of uh, maybe a demagogue or a particular political party, maybe on the far left, maybe on the far right, it is essential that all small d democratic forces, despite their ideological differences, work together to isolate and uh, ultimately defeat that political force. That is not always possible. Uh, sometimes the the outsider beats even the a grand coalition, uh, and there are there are costs that we can talk about to this sort of grand coalition. But in the short term, when facing an authoritarian threat, as Dan and I believed we faced in 2016, as a much larger number of Americans uh, agreed we faced in 2020, and as it looks like we will face again in 2024, it is essential to build a a coalition that extends way beyond the Democratic Party, that extends well beyond blue states and and, and they're they're sort of those who identify with them, uh, but that includes political, business, religious, civic figures on the right, on the center right, who are committed to democracy. And there are many of those. And that's hard to do. I mean, it sounds great. It's easy for me to say. It's easy to write down on paper. But building coalitions isn't isn't the same thing as joining arms with your friends. Uh, 
building coalitions me- means building, make, forging a partnership with people you don't agree with, with people you don't like very much, with people you've competed against and you really don't want to be in power calling the policy shots. But when democracy is on the line, when democracy is threatened, it is essential that there be a, uh, a, a concerted effort, a, a coalition among small D democratic forces. And so that means that figures on the right, again, religious, business, political figures, swallow hard and, and accept that they're going to, in the case of the United States, probably helped to elect someone from a political party uh, that they've been working against their whole lives. But it also means that people on the, the left or progressives in the Democratic Party have to swallow hard and agree to at least temporarily take some issues that they care a lot about and put them on the shelf so that there's space for more conservative and right-wing figures in their coalition. And that really, I mean, it's happened to some extent. And obviously the the major never Trump organizations, whether it be the Lincoln Project or the Bulwark, have very much engaged in this sort of coalitional behavior. We still haven't really seen this sort of broad coalition take shape. I was disappointed, for example, that Mitt Romney voted for his wife for president. I can't remember actually if that was 2016 or 2020. But small D Democratic Republicans have to stand up and campaign for the Democratic Party ticket. And obviously the Democrats have to make create the space for them to be welcome in, in the coalition. And that, with only a few exceptions, hasn't happened that much. That coalition needs to be much broader. And you know, I think that w- what we're saying makes is really salient and really relevant today when Donald Trump is the likely Republican nominee and is tied with Joe Biden in in most polls. So that's that's containment. That right, center, and left forces who are committed to democracy have to unite and work together to isolate and politically defeat the authoritarians. Um, why don't I actually hand militant democracy over to to Danny, who's who's more of an expert on it than I am? Yeah, well, I would just say that there's two. I mean, so it's what what Steve has just pointed out is this kind of strategy of containment. I mean, the thing I would just emphasize is that this is really a short run strategy in a moment of crisis, in a moment where you're facing off against a an authoritarian. This is what is often necessary. This is what happens in other democracies. And at the as at the moment we're speaking here, you know, within Germany, uh, there's a far right, more than a far right, a really anti democratic force, the alternative for Germany. And to date, what has happened is is this party although it wins more and more votes, is not able to gain power because the mainstream parties join together and form coalitions, often uncomfortable coalitions, at the, often at the, at the state level, to keep this, this party out. It's, it's hard work to do that, and one can look into the German case to see how hard that is because you know it's incredibly tempting to say, well, maybe we should try to normalize this extremist and try to tame the extremist. But I think the record of the U.S. is actually instructive to Germans that this is a this this, uh, this doesn't work. I mean, it, it, there needs to be a broad coalition, it, it, but it is a short run solution. An alternative short run solution. I mean, there is one other thing that other democracies do when faced off with authoritarians, and again, this also comes from the German context originally, which is this notion of what's sometimes called militant democracy or defensive democracy. And the basic idea here is that, you know, I mean, this came out of the, the 1930s in, in Europe and in Germany in particular, where liberals, you know, after having seen Hitler come to power and retrospect realized that having just sort of stood by and let authoritarians compete in elections and win power and hope that the kind of system would magically cure itself didn't work. And so written into the German constitution, the West German constitution after 1945, were a set of rules which allowed for the uh, banning of parties if they uh, were violent, if they were anti-constitutional, if they were anti-democratic. You know, there's a there's a very long legal tradition that's developed since the 1940s, and it's the kind of jurisprudence that's developed in court decisions where you know if the par- a party is suspected of being anti-democratic, uh, an investigation is open, judges have to approve this. And parties ultimately can be banned. It's only happened twice. Uh, usually what happens is these investigations themselves discredit the parties and voters are alerted to the threats. And so in a way, this is a kind of defense me- mechanism to protect uh, against parties. Now, in the United States, this, you know, to American ears, this may kind of sound shocking. You know, how can you ban a political party and still be a democracy? 
you know, interest. So it, it's it's foreign to, I think, in some sense, American sensibilities. Although what's really become clear is that actually the U.S., I guess, sort of to surprise of many Americans, within the Fourteenth Amendment, we've discovered recently, there, you know, is, there's a uh, Section Three which allows that came out of the Civil War which allows for the banning of candidates for office who have participated in insurrection. So America actually contains within its constitution a militant democracy tradition. The, the problem with this is this is also very much a short-term solution, even in places where it has uh, has worked reasonably well, as in Germany, because you know banning parties is a kind of thing that is can be easily abused. And so one has to really act with caution. And it's really a, a kind of tool of last resort. You know, if facing a kind of emergency situation, you know, if there is a legal procedure in place, this is something that seems possibly viable. In the U.S., whether or not this is like a, a useful strategy in the U.S., I'm sort of a little more doubtful of it or dubious of it, you know, or skeptical of it, I guess, because we don't have the kind of uh, legal tradition established to kind of uh, that it does, has less legitimacy currently in the U.S. You know, so if Donald Trump were banned for, from uh, taking off the voting uh, rolls in, in certain states by secretaries of state. And this is something people are actively considering. This will, I think, prompt a kind of a dangerous backlash. Now, you know, I'm not really, a, I'm not a legal scholar. I, I'm not in a position to judge the kind of constitutionality of this. This would certainly go to the Supreme Court. But this is a tool in the arsenal. And I think we all should be aware that it's there. And, and along with containment, these defensive postures are potentially, in principle, at least potentially short-run solutions to these risks of anti-democratic actors. But at the end of the day, we, I think, we make try to make the case in our book that there are other strategies that are more important, especially for the long run. And Steve, turning to those uh, other strategies and and the the preferred course of treatment, if you will, for for the ailing democracy, could you run through some of those? You know, you don't have to 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 run through the entire list. We don't want to give the whole game away. We want to, you know still have a reason for people to buy the book. But um, what are some of the greatest hits there? And then again, if you could give a sort of assessment of their feasibility, keeping in mind all of the difficulties for reform um, that we've spoken about already. Yeah, let, let me preface this by saying that we thought long and hard about this feasibility in pie in the sky question. And we knew that we were going to come in for criticism for being unrealistic, for uh, for making a set of proposals that uh, most of which stand little to no chance of, of passage in the immediate term, and some of which uh, may never get get passed. And we decided that as political scientists and as comparatives, people who look at how democracies work elsewhere in the world, that sort of our comparative advantage or our, our what we could add to the discussion is this ability to take a step back, place the United States in comparative perspective, and make a set of arguments for for how the United States could be more democratic, and and this gets back to something Daniel said a, a few minutes ago. You know, we're, we're not policymakers; we're we're not going to implement this stuff. But our goal is to begin or contribute to what is an emerging public debate about democratic reform, and that's something we argue that Americans have been doing for for nearly its our, our entire history. But again, that we've sort of stopped doing during our lifetimes, during the last half century. So our goal is to begin a public debate about uh, democratic reform, to get some reform ideas on the table so that uh, when the, 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 the opportunity arises, when the political moment arises, it's hard to anticipate when that would be. It's hard to anticipate what that opportunity will be. But, but moments arise. They have throughout our history. When that moment arises, we're, we're sort of ready to, to act as a society. So what are these reforms? We, we have a, a list of 15. All of them are about empowering majorities. They are about ensuring that uh, electoral majorities actually govern and, facil- and allowing uh, governing majorities or majority-based governments to actually govern, to prevent partisan minorities from systematically thwarting uh, and sometimes even governing over majorities. That's something that happens in the United States that doesn't happen in most other democracies in the world. In most other democracies in the world, partisan minorities cannot systematically thwart and govern over majorities. So the reforms are aimed at moving us in the direction of greater majority rule. This just this is should not be confused with majority tyranny. We are very aware 
of the risks of empowering, of overly empowering majorities. Uh, we have a chapter in which we devote, that we devote to what we call essential minority rights. We argue that basic protections for individuals, individual liberties, the kinds of things that are enshrined in the Bill of Rights must be protected from the will of the majority and the democratic rules of the game itself must be protected from the will of the majority. In other words, it has to be really hard to change the political rules of the game, to, to, to change the Constitution. The reforms that we that we call for do not push us in the direction of, say, Israel, which I think has become, an, an, which is an overly majoritarian democracy, do not push us in the direction of Hungary, which I think was also an overly majoritarian democracy, but rather make us more similar to established democracies in countries like Germany and Finland and, Nor and Norway, as you mentioned, and New Zealand. So what are they? Maybe first and most obviously, uh, abolition of the Electoral College. No other presidential democracy in the world allows the loser of the presidential election to win the presidency. We shouldn't either. Secondly, this is not a, uh, a constitutional uh, reform, elimination of the filibuster. Um, that may, in the short run, end up actually hurting the Democratic Party. It's it's entirely possible that uh, that the Republicans control the, the the Senate for much of the short and medium term, and so and we've actually talked to Democratic lawmakers who are very very worried about giving up the filibuster in a context in which uh, Mitch McConnell or his successor controls the the Senate. But in, in terms of establishing a functioning and legitimate democracy, it is essential that we that we uh, abolish or at least dramatically weaken the filibuster. We call for for term limits on for Supreme Court justices, 12 or probably 18 years, which uh, in addition to at least ameliorating somewhat the, the kind of intergenerational counter-majoritarianism entailed by justices who are on the, the, the court for 40 years, would also help us, uh, as you know, avoid some of the the really intense crises that are now emerging around every Supreme Court appointment. If every president uh, had uh, knew that they were going to have two appointments per four-year term, uh, it would sort of low, pretty, actually pretty dramatically lower the stakes for Supreme Court appointments and, and I think help us avert some crises. We call for uh, the, uh, ideally, the establishment of the right to vote in the Constitution. The Constitution is never protected all Americans' right to vote. We Most constitutions do. There's a lot of debate about whether what kind of practical impact that would have, whether it would help to stave off the, the sorts of efforts to, to make it harder to vote that we've seen in, in mostly Republican states in, in the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, but we think there ought to be a right to vote in the Constitution. And we think there, there ought to be a series of measures, not constitutional, uh, to make it easier for citizens to vote. Governments in most democracies work hard to ensure that it's easy for people to vote. Most democracies have automatic registration and some democracies even make it mandatory to vote. So there are a set of, of reforms that, that we can take that would probably move voter turnout from the 50 to 60% range to the 70 to 80% range. Automatic registration, making uh, election day either a holiday or maybe moving to a Sunday, and a whole set of, of reforms to to uh, facilitate voting. Given that that there is um, demonstrably no record of significant electoral fraud in the United States, I cannot personally think of a drawback to making it much easier for Americans to vote. D voting is, is an essential part of modern democracy. If you want pie in the sky, another reform that we think is very important, but which is at the same time next to impossible, is a reform of the U.S. Senate so that we that states are represented proportionate to their populations. So states like Florida and Texas and New York and California would have greater representation than states like Vermont and Wyoming. That's a, a, a simple democratizing step. There is no there is no defense in in democratic theory, for in my view, for giving uh, states with population of, of a, a few hundred thousand the same representation as uh, the states, states like Texas and, and California. Now that um, requires the consent of all 50 states to amend the constitution in that way. So it's deeply unlikely to say the least.
Dan, as Steve just mentioned, you are both uh, political scientists and comparativists. So my apologies if this final question ventures into the world of, of political theory. But um, I think there's an implicit critique or perhaps at times explicit uh, in your book that American culture, perhaps by and large, uh, views the Constitution as this um, you know, sacrosanct, untouchable document, covenant almost. But, you know, I think you, you make it clear that it's important to, to shift thinking, to view the Constitution more as a living document, uh, one that not only can change, but should. Um, so first, uh, you know, why is it important to, to bring about this paradigm shift for some? And how do you think we can get there in, in, in our thinking about the Constitution? Well, you know, I think our position actually is not so radical. It's very much in line with the founders themselves. You know, George Washington, shortly after the convention, uh, wrote someone saying in a letter, you know, this is an imperfect document. We have no monopoly. We, the founders, have no monopoly on virtue and and wisdom, and it'll be up to future generations to perfect it or to work on it. Um, You know, Thomas Jefferson himself is also warned about treating this like it's, you know, a kind of document that was kind of the Ark of the Covenant or something. It's a kind of sacred book of revelation or something. You know, this is a man-made document. It's a man-made document. You know, it's a very effective document. I mean, one should regard it as, you know, as a document that served us very well. But part of the reason it served us well is because it's been improved upon. And so it's a, it's a, it's not, you know, improving upon it is the thing that gives, it gives us the document to today that has worked to the degree that it works well, to the degree that American democracy has thrived, to the degree our economy and our society has thrived. It's because the document's been improved upon. And so it's very much part of the American tradition to do this. And it's really outside of the American tradition uh, to say, well, this is something that we just can't touch. And so I think it's really critical to get to get the history right, I mean the doc, the, the Constitution itself. If we go back and look at the details of the convention itself, I mean this was a it was a series of compromises. You know these were very smart men trying to do their best under great pressure in a room with no air conditioning, uh, trying to get a, a deal uh, sealed. And so you know they the Electoral College was really an afterthought. It was the best solution, third, fourth option. You know after all others had failed. And so we have to the, one of the last uh, lines of our book we say. You know, Americans must learn to love their country with a broken heart. And what that means is to recognize, to, to recognize the failings of our own system and our own history, but at the same time to love our country. And that means to work on improving it. And so that, at the end of the day, is what we think is the way we ought to be thinking about our own history and our own future. The book is called Tyranny of the Minority. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks very much, Tyler. It was a pleasure. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.